Hello, and welcome to another edition of Inside Intercom. So the theme of this week's show is rooted in some big news for us. That is, we just released our seventh book, Intercom on Marketing. Getting marketing right is one of the hardest challenges a startup faces, and this book is a collection of almost everything we've come to learn about it. From launching your product and getting your early messaging right, to how to closely align your product and marketing teams, to learn how to leverage tactics like events, demand generation, and even content like, say, this podcast, and everything in between. So step one, go and get your copy of Intercom on marketing today at intercom.com forward slash books. And with that, in this episode, you're going to hear some of the sharpest startup marketing lessons that guests have shared with us here in the studio over the past year. You'll hear from Intercom co-founder Des Trainer, Stripe's very first marketing hire, Krithika Muthakumar, Copyhackers co-founder Joanna Weeb, Growth marketer Sujin Patel, Edelman PR pro Lucy Allen, Stripe brand designer Everett Katigbak, and renowned content strategist Christina Halverson. Each shares their take on a different challenge your team is going to eventually face, from making your very first marketing hires, to the tactics you'll use to spread the word about your product and hopefully grow its audience too. And if you're particularly taken by any of these guests, you can catch each of these full interviews by subscribing to Inside Intercom on iTunes or wherever your preferred podcast destination may be these days. Let's get into it. You're listening to Inside Intercom. Intercom. Making internet business personal at scale. Learn more at intercom.com. Let's start at square one. Who owns the job of marketing in your startup's earliest days before you've ever hired a dedicated marketer? And where should you look to hire your first one? There are no perfect answers to this, but we can speak from experience. Here's Des Trainer, our co-founder and chief strategy officer, reflecting back on Intercom's earliest marketing. The voice you'll hear chiming in on the other side, that's Matt Hodges, who effectively started the marketing department as we know it today. I think at the time the narrative was we don't have marketing, right? And it's actually interesting. People like to boast about not having marketing, but I think that's not really a great thing to say. Now, I don't think we actually, we didn't say it like that. We said we haven't done marketing yet, right? Like we always figured marketing would be this extra gear that we have, and it turned out to be. But I think like people can get a little bit too boasty or confident about the fact that they've yet to do marketing because I think they talk about like it's a home run, right? Like right. as if like all we need to do is hire Mr. or Mrs. Marketing and then <laughs> all of a sudden like the demand will just fly off the shelves. You know, it doesn't actually work like that in practice. And in practice, you weren't even our first marketing hire. We got it wrong before we hired you. Yep. Um, arguably, we got it right when we hired you. <laughs> um, but I think like who did marketing? Well, it depends. If you're talking about that, like who designed the homepage and who said what was for it, that would have been the work of like Owen or CEO and Frank or the designer uh, from it like who was like generating the bulls on a day-to-day sort of basis it was me i was like writing weekly newsletters i was i wrote the first i wrote 93 of the first 100 blog posts that we used to yep. shoot for like two posts a week or three posts a week back then i also ran a twitter account where we'd share all the stuff back then we used to also share links that we'd read from other parts of the world that we thought were good as well i talked to our customers i did all the webinars all that sort of stuff like that was all kind of on my shoulders in a sense but we, we never would have called that marketing we would have called that like just keep the buzz going or yep. some abstract word for that. I don't think that was wrong necessarily. I think marketing is genuinely one of the hardest functions to hire in because they're really good at selling themselves <laughs> by virtue of it. But in general, like it's, you have a lot of different challenges. One, you know, not all brands are equal. So not all products are susceptible to the same types of marketing or the same approaches. But at the same time, you're in an industry that kind of likes to define itself a little bit by playbooks and sort of saying, well, here's how you do this and here's how you do that. And that in our experience just hasn't been like, something that works you know we uh, for either through stubbornness or through some sharp insight we've decided to kind of do most things our own way and i think that's what feels better for us but it does mean that like 
you have to hire people who are bringing a wealth of raw aptitude and IQ, an open mind about how to do things, and also like an enthusiasm for the role. And I think someone like yourself actually embodies that for us. Like, but we didn't like the, the thinking wasn't that mature at the time. Like, it, it's hard. I think most startups genuinely did they think we're going to put a screenshot on the homepage, come up with a tagline, uh, you know, which will be something like you know, ticket tracking reimagined or something like that. Uh, have an email sign up and they're done, right? Yeah. Box checked, back to product. And then like, you know, there's this cynical thing that startups have around marketing, which is, oh, at some point we're going to bring in somebody who's, who's all like stripy suits and shoes and hair gel and shit. And they're going to do all the real stuff. But like we're, we're intellectually above that. Yeah. Actually, you're not. There's like so much beautiful, elegant literature about marketing. David Acker's writing on how to establish a brand. The whole theory of brand architecture is really, really interesting really truly intellectually thinking about how you generate demand and then how you create capturing consumers there's so much there and you just don't know it that's all yep. now I would say marketers don't do themselves a big favour because like there are lots of good blogs to talk about how to build a product how to build a business however, there's very little good marketing uh, material out there I've been pushing our team to try and help and try and contribute that but like there's like there's not as many epic thought leaders in the marketing space for SaaS Right. As there are for like say product or whatever, right? You know, and like and that that means I think to really change this perception, we need to kind of get people out there who are kind of well known to be good marketers, and yet they're not the like, black hat SEO people, right? Yeah. yeah, sounds like I have to try harder. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> all right, so you know I'm still here three years later, so things obviously went somewhat right. I know a lot of startups really do struggle with their first marketing hire and trying to find that right person. Based on, you know, the mistakes that we've made and the successes we've seen at Intercom, what advice would you give fellow founders looking to make that first marketing hire? Are there any specific qualities or characteristics or skills that they should be looking for? Like this is one of these, you know, that Paul Bookheit quote, like advice is life experience over extrapolated or something like that, right? So like I'm going to give it, well, you know, my experience of this, but, you know, your mileage or your marketing may vary. What I would say, the obvious stuff to me is I think starting with product marketing actually makes sense. I think, like, first of all, understand that marketing is not a team, right? It's not just, oh, it's marketers and they're all somehow this interchangeable thing, right? There are different types of marketers and there are different types of marketing functions, and that's really important to know. Secondly, you need to understand, like, you know, where where does your first problem lie? And I think for us, like, you know, we really wanted a sharper way to communicate to the world what Intercom is, and that is product marketing. However, if your app is quite clean and tight in scope, and maybe it's very self-evident, like, so we do expense tracking. That's literally what we do. We do expense tracking. Then actually maybe that's not your challenge. Maybe, you're, maybe your first challenge is like, how do we actually penetrate Fortune 500 companies? Or, or how do we get all of the world talking about expense tracking? Or how do we make expense? Yeah. You know, you might have different challenges. For us, we, you know, if you're in a situation where like you're producing a product that like, that is like, both incredibly valuable and hard to explain in a sort of one sentence thing to to all of a company. Your first challenge is like, you know, positioning, it's packaging, it's like, what is the product? It's the four P's, right? It's all that shit. And I think that's where we started and it worked really well for us. The only other thing I'd say is like, product marketing is also a good place to start because I think great product marketers are great product people and I think great product people are great marketers. And I think, so I think you find some intellectual common ground really quickly between those two sets of people that you don't necessarily find when you bring in the SEO guru or whatever. Yeah. That's not to be dismissive of the SEO guru. I don't know who the SEO guru in Intercom is. It's some agency we have. But but like I, I don't mean to belittle their work. I just mean that like there's, there's less shared ground between how you keyword stuff a blog post with uh, how you make product decisions. I think product and product marketing are so beautifully joined that it's a great sort of inroad to start a marketing team from. But again... That only makes sense if you're like that type of product. So for some people, it's just, you know, if you have a mobile app and you just want to like 
you know, it's consumer app, you just want to crank up demand. You maybe maybe your first marketer is somebody who like knows online advertising really well. Maybe. I actually genuinely don't know. But yeah, I think you know, the the traits you're looking for are like somebody who gets their product, somebody who loves their product, somebody who's who's like intellectually able to match the people that are there and understands the constraints of like we can't build everything and we need to build stuff that resonates with the target audience and some stuff will come later and some stuff will be shipped today and all that sort of stuff. It's all good. Being the first marketing hire at any startup is a tall task. Where exactly do you start and how do you prioritize all the different elements that require your touch and attention? This is particularly important when your product represents a whole new idea or category, wherein the marketing message needs to be carefully crafted so users can appreciate the potential value of this brand new concept you're bringing to market. As Stripe's very first marketer, Krithika Muthukumar knows this challenge well. She's helped grow the marketing team to a dozen and counting, and in the process, has overseen a cultural change in the way the marketing message is considered part of product development at Stripe. So, where do you start? Here's Krithika's take. When I joined Stripe about four years ago, I was actually just the first person in marketing. So my work spanned everything from positioning and branding, uh, developer campaigns, product launches, writing copy. And until about three years ago, I was the only person in marketing at Stripe. So I've done everything from pinch hitting for our sales teams and enabling our teams to doing co-marketing with some of our largest partners and working on our community efforts for the different audiences that we serve. As of last year, we've started building out the team, and now we have a small but mighty team of about 12 people on the marketing team here at Stripe. What type of expectations did they set you up for on day one? I mean, what, what were the first challenges they gave you? Yeah, I mean, it was an exercise in prioritization, and in many ways, I had the leeway to set the priorities for the function. I think for many companies, the advice that I always give is that you have to make marketing work towards the business goals that you have. And at Stripe, there's been sort of three very distinct eras or epics that I've been through. When I first joined Stripe, it was literally just the homepage and documentation. So, you know, I went on a a support rotation and was speaking to customers for a couple of days and noticed that many of them had very similar questions. You know, do you guys support subscription billing? Uh, Do you guys support paying out to people? And of course we did, but they had no reason to know. And the first real time that I was there at Stripe was about filling the voids of content because in in many ways, that first era, that first bit for product marketing is always trying to make sure you're telling your customers the very basic things about your features and your functionality and your products so that they can understand what what it is that your product supports and can make a decision about whether to use your product or not. So that that was really the first thing that I did at Stripe. And then the second thing was around getting launches under control. You know, before my time at Stripe, we have a continuous deploy process. So our engineers would launch things into production and into the hands of customers. And if they remembered to, would write up a blog post about it. When I first got there, we were establishing things like sending emails to our users. We were establishing new channels such as events or websites or landing pages to get the word out about a new feature or product and and really connecting our users with the products as well. So you mentioned one of your big challenges when you first got to Stripe, one of many big challenges was to get a handle on launches. How do you go about handling prioritization for launches, whether it's the things that you really shout about and will contact users through email and do press or what's just a change log entry or everything that falls in between? Are there any guiding principles that you use? Yeah, like most companies, we have a very loose tiering structure, tier one, tier two, tier three. Um, you know, tier ones are the launches that'll get 
press support, they'll often get a landing page, a full sales training, um, whatever we can do to really push that product and, and make it a capital P product, if you will, across the things that we are building. The tier two launches are often a blog post or a targeted email message or an email campaign to our users. It might also involve some sales training. It really depends. I think the meta point is that we're not trying to get too prescriptive about the menu of launch options that you get. Because we're trying to be thoughtful and mindful that every launch or every feature has a specific audience in mind and has a specific business need that it's trying to fulfill. So our marketing tries to stem from that. So we try to set the business goals and the objectives first and then build the right marketing campaigns around that to really meet those goals. I think the one thing that I really try to be mindful of and our entire team does is to not launch and forget. Often marketing can jump from launch to launch and you sort of throw up a a great product and then it sort of trickles out or dies. Um, And what we really aim to do and try to do is to make sure that we are keeping track of the product's metrics, keeping track of engagement, adoption, usage, and influencing those numbers over time and baking into our processes ways that we can continue to put the product out there, continue to iterate on the messaging. We might have a base case case study where it's just someone speaking about the value to their company. What we would love to do and what our always our end goal is, is to layer in more stats, more hard numbers, ways to quantify the ROI that'll actually be even more compelling to future prospects and users. Whether you like it or not, email will inevitably be a core piece of your marketing strategy. And if you're serious about getting more people in your product, you better take email seriously too. In fact, if you ask Joanna Weeb, co-founder of the revered agency Copy Hackers, a disregard for email is the number one mistake she sees startup marketers making time and time again. Joanna quite literally wrote the book on how early stage startups can get their messaging straight, so her take is one that's well worth considering. Here she is talking email marketing. Taking email seriously is the number one thing. And that doesn't mean take it seriously, like treat it like a serious thing. It means treat it like a serious business opportunity. So it was about two years into Copy Hackers where I realized that we're like, we're an email business. We would be zero without email. Like nothing would happen. We'd get some people to our site. We would never be able to like sell them anything um, or send more content their way or do anything good for them without collecting email addresses. Have to do that. And you have to identify the thing that grows your business. And so many times email is that thing. Now, there are rare exceptions where that isn't that thing, right? I'm sure if you're in gaming, email isn't going to drive people back. There's other things that are going to be built in, whatever, et cetera. I'm not in gaming, but I'm sure that there are other things for other audiences. But if you're in software in particular or service businesses as well, email is how you drive sales. So number one is take it seriously, like make it a real part of your marketing. People spend a lot of time optimizing their homepage or, or redoing their pricing table or something like that. And those are fine. If your emails are performing well, if your emails aren't performing well, go work on that, like immediately. Then once you're in there really do like assess your emails, honestly, not as somebody who is worried about UX, assess them as your actual recipient, like the person who's going to get this email on their mobile phone or at their desk or whatever it is, and really like allow yourself to read through them and 
with that comes kind of getting rid of all the crap you think is important when it comes to writing copy. Like basically seven times a day I hear, oh, Joanna, people don't read online. Like I've heard it so many times I can't even handle it anymore. Like people do read online. They will read your emails if they are interesting. People will not read anything anywhere that is boring ever. It doesn't matter where it is. If it's boring, they won't read it. So it goes without saying that, you know, and people think, okay, well, but I'm writing about business stuff or I'm writing a sales email. So of course it's going to be boring. Well, what? Then just don't make it boring anymore. Try like testing it where it's not boring this time. So that's, that's one of the biggest things, right? Is first take it seriously, then make them engaging, like really engaging emails. And that often means that you have to kind of shift up your approach a bit. So a one-to-one email goes over oftentimes far better than a business to many or a business to one email. So if it's Wistia sending an email versus Chris at Wistia sending an email, that's an interesting test, right? So if the CEO of Wistia sends an email or Andrew, you know, head of growth sends an email, um, test that versus just Wistia sending that email or test a quote unquote, like success manager against um, the company. So there's, there's those sorts of basic things. Writing it in a narrative style is also another thing where you like open with a hook, treating every email like it's a mini sales letter. And so we did this with Wistia actually. And I wrote about it on the copy hackers blog. Um, We tested eight onboarding emails. So they have, um, and this is surely something that the intercom audience will oh, relate sure, to, yeah. <laughs> right? You have these onboarding emails that you send out and they have three sequences that are triggered based on different activities that you do. And so we worked on the third triggered sequence and it's eight emails that are triggered and they're designed. This whole sequence is like it comes at the end of the trial in most cases and it's where you're trying to move people to go from trial user to paying customer. So those are my favorite places to optimize. They're usually a good way to get a real read on whether what you're doing is going to move people um, or not. Mm -hmm. Uh, Because at the end of the day, they have to actually give you your credit card or they don't give you your credit card, their credit card. And then, um, yeah, now you can learn something real. Just before we continue with today's episode, I wanted to let you know about Offscript. It's a new series of candid conversations with intercom leadership all about the extraordinary AI-driven transformation we're currently experiencing. Episode one is on our YouTube channel right now. Here's a teaser of what you can expect. I don't want to come across as overly dramatic, but for every single tech company, this is an adapt or die moment. It's inevitable that all businesses are going to go AI first. It's just a matter of time. In this post-AI world, new companies will rise, old companies will fall. Of course, some of these new companies will flame out. Some old companies will pivot successfully too. I don't think any of us could see a world where this wasn't going to be one of the biggest changes in the customer service landscape ever. The world we care about is customer service. And it's so patently obvious that the old way will be quickly obsolete. We're racing hard to build a future which will result in better experiences and results for customers and businesses too. It's not just a product change, it's a mindset change. Let's make space to talk about all of this. We have so much we want to share. We want to explore these ideas in the open. We want to provoke new ones in you. We want to learn from your reaction. You just click the kind of like big stupid go button, right? And see what happens. Welcome to Offscript. 
That's all to come on Off Script. The first episode is out now. You can watch it on Intercom's YouTube channel and we'll bring you audio versions of the episodes right here. Now, back to today's episode. If you ask most folks when to bring marketing into a startup, the answer is almost always going to be the earlier, the better. But there are certain types of marketing that require some patience. Chief among them, growth marketing. Sujin Patel, co-founder of the agency Web Profits, has made a career out of helping other startups unlock the potential of growth tactics. But, as you'll hear, he also knows firsthand what can go wrong if you tap them too soon, too. Once you've figured out your product market fit, it's immediately time to figure out, you know, I think uh, Andrew, Chan, and Brian before call it channel market fit. It's immediately time to figure out your marketing channels or it's more so trying to find that one or two marketing channels that you can use to go from wherever you're at to that next level. And, and I think over that, that whole process of like first investing into kind of growth or marketing, um, it's really not about like, can I get social ads to work? Can I get, you know, um, can I get AdWords to work? Can I do SEO? Can I do content marketing? It's like you kind of have to invest in one or two. And if you look at the biggest companies out there, you know, look at Apple, look at Microsoft, each company is usually has one main channel and like two or three ancillary channels or like kind of secondary channels. And so, you know, why I say this is that like the, if the largest companies in the world have only three or four channels of marketing, you really only need to figure out three or four. And it's never been in the case in the history of mankind that you can somebody, a startup with limited resources can achieve success at three different things at the same time. So find one that you want to enter in. And then kind of as you get that one humming along, go after the next one and kind of go after the next one. And I like to like not overthink it. You know, let's say you're you're trying to raise money. Well, probably not good to go invest into content marketing and SEO as a primary channel to move the needle because they take too long, right? You might need to go and spend it on ads or outbound sales. And so from the perspective of a growth marketer, then if they come into a job at a startup and let's say there's there's a good long stream of content, they've been doing a great job at content marketing for a while, but they're still working out the product kinks, can they do their job well while the product team works this stuff out? Or does there need to be a great product in place right away for this to work? Uh, I think it's a, it's a, the product is always a moving target, right? I don't think it's ever going to be perfect. There is a such thing as investing in marketing too early. In fact, um, I unfortunately at my first kind of SaaS endeavor, uh, contentmarketer.io, which has kind of pivoted over to now what's called Mailshake, we made that exact mistake. So yes, you can definitely invest too early. And I'd highly recommend not doing that. So if you don't have a product that can fit that channel, then I would recommend not leveraging that. So for example, at Mailshake or contentmarketer.io, we had a product that was kind of okay. And we were still validating kind of product market fit. And I still I went to I went to town naturally as a marketer. I was like, I'm gonna go to town on marketing. And so I built an audience, I built an email list, we started blogging, we got lots and lots of traffic. People even converted into customers, but like the feedback we got from the first month was like, I don't think this product is right for me. It doesn't fit. Like there's like we wasted that whole channel and drove too many people. We got too many people talking about us, which sounds like a a kind of a good problem to have, but it's a really bad one because their first impression of us was a product that doesn't work for them or like, you know, a bad product. So I would highly recommend in the early days if you're figuring out your product and it's still not kind of fully ironed out, 
lay the groundwork on some of this stuff, right? Like go lay the groundwork of like content that you know is going to be potentially optimized or something that can rank, but go to count on like channels like outbound, a cold email or, you know, advertising where you can turn them on and off and make sure when you turn them on, you get feedback, you get the data, and then you turn it, you know, when you turn it off that before you turn it back on, you're ready to go. While you may need to wait until product market fit for many of the tactics Sujin mentions, there's still plenty to be done on the marketing front to get to that point. For starters, a great product, even if released at the perfect time, is still going to need two things to succeed, attention and credibility, all of which is wrapped up in your startup story. And you're going to need that story to attract users, establish trust, and grab the attention of potential investors. All of that means getting a handle on PR. Lucy Allen, general manager and head of Bay Area at Edelman, has spent the past two decades working with tech companies of all sizes to do just that. Early last year, she joined our program to break down how startups can begin shaping their external story and how your PR needs will evolve as your startup grows. Here's Lucy. News is the psychology of the unexpected. And if your news story doesn't pass the so what test, then it's not a news story. If it doesn't somehow surprise the reader or tell them something they didn't already know, then it's it's not news. So, you, you know, as an internal communicator or a communicator of any sort, you really need to be harsh on yourself when assessing the value of your news. I think the other way I think about this is business media in particular typically writes about just two things, people and money. So if your story doesn't have a strong human element and can't talk about the people whose lives it's affecting, or it doesn't talk about money in a way that is meaningful to individuals, to consumers, or in a way that shows how you are moving markets, then it's probably not got the right ingredients for a a new story. So that's a good sort of guide, Mark, to ensure that you don't just get lost in the weeds of your product, but that you think about the wider ramifications of your story. A startup may not have vast numbers of customers or great big partner ecosystems to talk about yet. What you do have is your founders. And so for private companies, a lot of the value for those private companies comes from the credibility of the founders. Mm -hmm. And so the founder story, and not just the, the story of founding the particular company that you're working on at the moment, but the founder's history and credibility is really important. And you can tell that in a series of resume-like bullet points, but you should also tell that through the form of your own personal story. What are some of the challenges that you faced? That will resonate much more. I think there are typically three phases that a startup goes through in terms of their communications needs. And, you know, for the sake of simplicity, I'll tie that to the different funding rounds that companies might go through, although of course it's different for every organization. Series A or B, typically probably more series A, is your needs are usually more focused around getting credibility and understanding of your technology. And I'm thinking specifically about technology companies here, but it could be, you know, it may not doesn't have to be a technology company, it could be in other sectors, but your proposition is likely to be not part of an existing category, or if it is part of an existing category, it's at least a new perspective on it. And so there's some education to be done. And so getting attention early on, Mm -hmm. it's really all about just making sure that there's an understanding with your very specific target audiences of what it is you're trying to communicate. That may be best done internally. 
because those are the people who have an understanding of the technology or the products or the proposition. That said, that's also the phase when you have a small team. Uh, you may not have a marketer or a communications expert in-house, and so you may need to turn to somebody externally to help you just take that message or adapt it and communicate it. Second phase, B and C round, is when you're more likely to be focused very much on revenue generation. And so you are working, everything you're doing is pretty much geared around lead generation, customers, partners. And so the type of PR that you do will change and it needs to be tied in very tightly to your content marketing, your lead generation programs. So at that point, the needs become a little bit more complex and where you might need an agency is if you need specialist expertise, that you're starting to need a broader range of expertise and skill sets in-house and you may not have all of those. And so that's where you would either, you you might keep some of it in-house, but you might work with an agency to bring in some of those capabilities. And then the third stage, once you start to get to sort of DE round, expansion stage funding, that's when you're likely to be transitioning from a single product to a multi-product company. You may be looking to expand internationally. You may be thinking about a liquidity event at some point. All of those things require not only additional expertise, and you may be going through some more complex challenges where you need people with unique expertise that you wouldn't want to have on staff all of the time, but you also need to work with somebody who's done that before. And so that's often companies either hire someone in who's been through that process before or they work with an agency partner to help them go through that process because once you start to look at regulatory challenges and um, more complex international communication challenges the safety net of knowing that somebody has done it before is really important. As important as PR and promoting your product through the media is, it's only one of the many inputs into how those on the outside will perceive your product or company. That's of course your brand something that's often misdefined as some amalgamation of tangible design artifacts. Yes, those pieces are important, but in reality, I think Jeff Bezos sums this up best, saying, brand is what people say about you after you leave the room. To go a little bit deeper on this distinction, we tapped designer Everett Katigback, who shaped the brands of some of the largest names in tech, including Facebook, Pinterest, and today, at Stripe. Here he is in conversation with our own director of brand design, Stuart Scott Curran. A lot of the brand is experienced through the product, you know, so people kind of start to just intuitively understand what the brand means. But, you know, at a certain point, you need to start being more proactive and start shaping what that narrative is. Um, So for me, a lot of it is about taking what um, customers or users or whoever encounters the product or this thing that you're making, that kind of feeling that you're trying to elicit through this thing you're building and just kind of making it more canonical, uh, You know, a friend of mine kind of broke down pretty saliently where he was like, um, product is about making something that's relatively universal to a broader set of people. You know, so you want to solve problems at scale. Um, But brand is about or brand and marketing is about taking that that emotion or that feeling and then making it canonical, you know, trying to make it really connect with someone at a human level, which often is very specific and very personal. Um, So for me, uh, it's not really one or the other per se. It's like they all kind of um, flow together pretty naturally. So I think at least in the early days of these companies that I've been at, I guess it's been more about the stage or the phase that I've come into the company at um, because I have a lot more access to the product team and like the the original or like the early kind of product development cycle, you know? Yeah. And so like I think like a lot of times when when people think about communications design or, or brand, 
in quotes there's a little bit of a cliche that that goes around with that you see a lot of blog posts that your brand is more than a logo like what do you see as like the core components of a brand today like how do you go a little bit deeper than that i guess this is like the age-old question or the challenge for designers and and it's constantly evolving especially as new tools and new distribution channels for brands to get their message out there i guess like the fact that it's a cliche means that it's probably rooted in some pattern or something that, you know, gets exploited to a certain degree, you know, when people write or blog about this stuff. Um, but for the most part, I think, I mean, when you take the traditional identity design, which used to be more what what designers specifically thought of as a brand, like I'll make you a logo and I'll do this brand identity guidelines thing and that that's about um, visual consistency or, or even voice to a certain degree. But I think for the most part, it gets like, I mean, there are a number of ways that people talk about it. Like people say, oh, it's a promise that that your product or your company is building, or it's really about this deeper thing that you stand for as a brand or as a, as a company, I mean. So brand, I guess the logo itself really is just meant as a trigger, you know, it's, yeah. it's meant to remind people of these experiences and these things and these narratives and all of these things that you're investing in as a company, these deeper things that you stand for today. It's just meant to remind them of who you are and what you stand for and why they they want to either be loyal or they, they want to kind of support you as a business. Considering this podcast is a living, breathing form of what we see as a successful marketing initiative, we'd be remiss to not get a little meta and mention the role content plays in your marketing mix. After all, content marketing is one of the most cost-effective ways to grow a business. Yet so, so many marketers get wrapped up in the get-rich-quick schemes of promotion that they fail to emphasize the content itself and the audience it's created to serve. Christina Halverson, CEO and founder of Brain Traffic, a world-renowned content strategy consultancy, agrees. Here she is breaking down what startups keep getting wrong with content and why. Even for the very large companies that we work with, I'm often really surprised at how at the, whether it's the marketing level or the, you know, content management level, how people are working with these very sort of large, broad goals that really, if you step back and look at them are more of like visioned, you know, like we're going to become the leading provider of content in fill in the blank industry for audiences everywhere. I mean, that's, that's not a strategy. That's a vision and a, and an undifferentiated, uninspiring one at that. <laughs> and so rather than starting with, you know, those big, big, I mean, everybody's got to start with sort of their company vision, their company mission and so on, but being able to really hone in on those longer term measurable goals And then gathering information about your audience and about your users, which means talking to them. And then, I mean, for me, the heart of any good content strategy really is putting your audience or putting your users in the center of everything you do. It's hard for me to think of, you know, any content strategy statement that does not include serving prioritized audience around or audiences based on their preference and in order to support kind of what their top tasks are when they come to you online. If you can start with that and start by gathering that information and being willing to really listen and accept what people want instead of what you wish they would want, Mm -hmm. that is a really excellent place to start. 
And without that information, I don't think that it's easy to really undertake any sort of larger holistic customer experience design initiative or to be able to think about the role that content, whether it is, you know, everything from the words we choose for user interface to if we've got a chat bot, you know, how we are scripting that and talking to people to the information that we're delivering to people on our websites to any sort of information, whether it's at the article level or whatever within our email and how we're delivering that to the website or, you know, or an online magazine or social media platforms, that's all content and getting that right, getting it to be consistent, which is a huge complaint I hear from organizations too, how difficult that is, no matter what size the organization is, getting that to be consistent that is where content strategy comes in. That is where content strategy needs to be informed by those business goals, by those audience needs, and then also by your company's constraints when it comes to resources. You know, like I said, we're a small company. We did not have the bandwidth to be able to effectively manage a blog and a podcast and social media channels. And so we made a very conscious decision to focus our resources into, in this case, events, because that's what made sense for us. So start with your concrete business goals, start with your shorter term objectives, start with your audience, and then craft that content strategy that's going to help you make a decision about where you are going to invest in your content and where you're not. And that I think is another thing. I mean, not to, I I guess I keep coming back around to content marketing, that we don't talk a whole lot about things that we shouldn't do in the context of, you know, do you use video? Do you use podcasts? Do you have an online magazine? It's more, you have all this opportunity, go get it. And that I think is very, very damaging to brands. The thing I love about Christina's take there is it's rooted in putting your users' needs first. To circle back and quote our own Des Trainer, a lot of startups spend untold time and resources cooking up a fancy marketing matrix when in fact they just need to have lots of real-life conversations with like-minded people about their problems and mutually explore how they can solve them. That's ultimately what doing marketing well comes back to. So if you've enjoyed the lessons you've heard here, and you skip the first step I mentioned atop the show, get your copy of Intercom on marketing today. You'll learn about how we've solved these challenges amid the ride of taking Intercom from zero to 20,000 customers. It includes our take on launching your product, getting your first customers, when to use tactics like demand generation or content, and much more. Again, the book's available at intercom.com forward slash marketing. And with that, happy reading and thanks for listening. We'll catch you next time. You've been listening to the Inside Intercom podcast. For more episodes, visit soundcloud.com slash intercom. If you'd like to subscribe, search for Inside Intercom in iTunes or Stitcher. And for even more great content, check out blog.intercom.com.